welcome to Streaming Into the Void, where we discuss all the streaming news for the week ending May the 6th, 2023. This week, Warner Brothers Discovery puts lipstick on a pig while we debate funny picket signs. I'm Kim Hollis, hoping to hang out with the Dallas Cowboys again this week. You know that Mike McCarthy isn't as social as the last guy was, right? (laughs) I was going to say, my close personal friend Jason Garrett will not be there, though, so yeah. Also, Tim Brighty, content creator, gamer, and new king of England somehow? I don't know how it happened either, folks, but I'll I'll just roll with it, see where it goes. (laughs) The heavy crown, man. Mm-hmm. Also, David Mumpower, author of Disney Demystified, streaming media analyst, and stuck eating bachelor chow the next few days. No, leave me, Kim. <laughs> How's that different from any other day? <laughs> Pray for bad weather. And the podcast is produced and edited by Raul Burrell, who just learned he's not a member of the Writers Guild. I'd just like to apologize to my fellow Streaming Into the Void podcasters for calling them last week. Um, <laughs> let me check my notes here. Suckers. <laughs> so, David, can we talk about the writer's strike now? Fine. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, David. I think we need some background here. We have touched upon it in the past. The Writers Guild of America represents screenwriters for movies and television in the United States, and they had a contract renewal during the pandemic, but because of the uncertainty then, they punted, but they made it clear that at our next contract negotiation, they'd make a stand on a number of issues that have been lingering for years and have become challenging for writers who increasingly find it difficult to make a living as a writer in Hollywood. Yeah, and we're going to touch on that last part in just a second. But we should also stress, when the last writer's strike was settled, the previous group of negotiators, they had an inkling streaming was about to become a thing. But let's be real, Netflix's streaming service was barely a year old at the time. If you'd asked nine out of ten people on the street, they would have said, what's that? They would have known Netflix for its DVDs. So the Writers Guild chose not to deal with that, and that decision has unfortunately caused some long-term difficulties, albeit ones that realistically nobody could have anticipated at the time. If we had made guesses in 2008 about the changes caused by streaming, nobody would have been right. It would have been like, you know, 25 years later predictions about people living on Mars. I mean, it's just that ludicrous. That's right. We've discussed extensively in the past about how streaming is a challenging financial situation for the studios as they try to make it profitable. And this turmoil is at the heart of the writer's concerns. Studios realize that residuals, payments based on how much something is watched, can hamper a successful streaming service. And that's code for when we pay the people who make this content more money, we earn less as a corporation. Yes. The studios want more subscribers to their streaming services, but more subscribers means more people watching stuff. And that means having to pay more residuals. Streamers are trying to head that off by paying talent like actors and writers a lump sum up front. No more residuals. It's a gamble since if the project they're working on isn't successful, the talent still gets a substantial amount of money in advance. But it cuts both ways. It means that if the project is successful, the talent doesn't get any extra money in the end. 
I'm going to disagree with you about the gambling part a little bit here. What you're saying is more the studios are arguing rather than what the reality of what's happening is. That's the studio side. Yes, they're paying talent less than ever relative to the amount of work performed. And that's before we factor in the end of residuals. And we should keep a focus on that throughout this discussion. All these corporations will say they're losing money on streaming. But what they won't say is they're making massive, almost historic amounts of money in other fashions, which means just this one small piece of the pie maybe has like a raisin on it they don't want or something. Well, be that as it may, the WGA surprisingly doesn't seem to be all that worked up about the demise of residuals, but they are trying to shore up other avenues of revenue to make up for the fact that residuals are going away. In the age of streaming, there's more shows, just listen to John Langraff talk about peak TV, but there's fewer episodes for each of those shows, which means that before a writer can make a living working on a show that had a 20 or 30 episode season, but now we're talking about six or eight episodes in a season. That's not enough for a writer to make a living. So a writer has to work on multiple projects, but often exclusivity contracts preclude that. And even that is a little bit misleading. Let's just think about it in these terms. When you were doing the conventional 22 to 25 episode season, that was your year. If you're doing a six to eight episode season, theoretically, that should only take one third to possibly one half of your year, maybe even less if you're really, really efficient. So you need, you know, three of these projects to guarantee that you're getting a paycheck every week of the entire year. Otherwise, it's like the teaching setup where you have to figure out what you're going to do during the summer. And that is not ideal for anyone, but it's even worse than that because let's say you're a showrunner or let's say you're heavily involved with something that has a slow production. And the example I'm going to use is a show we just completed, which is The Bear. The gist was that they were working on a project for eight months and their cut wound up being about $2,000 a month. And a writer from The Bear acknowledged this absolute insanity. When they went to pick up a group writing award recently, they had a negative bank account balance at the time. And it used to be when you worked on the hottest show in television, you were set for a decade. And now we've reached this insane point where you can work on something as high profile and hot as the bear and be broke at an almost unimaginable level. We are not paying our talent what our talent deserves in Hollywood. Yeah. And those exclusivity contracts is really what's hurting the writers. The studios are hanging on to their writers and threatening to not pay them if they don't don't complete what the WGA is calling unpaid work, like hanging around on the set to punch up dialogue or touching up some scripts. You don't do that. You don't get your final check. You don't get to go on to another project until you do that. It's just the latest example that these corporations hold all the power. They know it and they treat the talent as such. And I mean, we're not even going to go into this aspect of it. But if you are a showrunner in Hollywood right now, you have already been delivered a letter from Warner Brothers Discovery or Disney that says, as a producer, you were expected to go into the office, which, let's be honest, is a form of crossing the picket line because they're saying you must honor your obligations as a producer or a director, even if you're also a writer. <laughs> and let me tell you, that is going to be a thing because that's. That is an offensive business practice, and I say that as a Disney super fan. One thing that David and I were talking about after we saw that information is that 
as mentioned in those couple of instances, a lot of showrunners, producers are also writers on their show. So they have not only writing duties, but they also have showrunning duties. And David and I, when we were talking, we were both kind of wondering, well, will they cross the picket lines and go over and do those duties? At least in the couple of instances David and I have researched, the answer is no. They're staying in solidarity with the writers, continuing to strike and not crossing those lines to do those other duties. This whole new paradigm related to streaming in shorter seasons is giving rise to something that the writers really want to put an end to, something called a mini room. It's replacing the traditional writer's room, where previously a show may have had a room full of writers pumping out scripts for a season full of episodes. Now a showrunner may bring together a mini room that puts together a broad outline for that show, then freelances out individual scripts to individual writers. Something that we've heard writers say repeatedly is that the studios are trying to turn writing into a gig economy. Right. And if any of this sounds reasonable to you, please take the word writer out of the conversation and just replace it with employee. Let's say that your company suddenly carved work into, you know, two or three month projects rather than, you know, full-time salaried work. Now presume the company lays off half the staff and doesn't promise work to the other people in the office. They're all working on spec in hope of getting hired for a longer period. It's like that 60 to 90 day performance evaluation that a lot of jobs have when you're new to it to make sure it's a good fit for everyone. Only it's a permanent part of the gig unless something changes for writers. It's a wholly unacceptable work request. These writers are getting paid breadcrumbs for a project that may not even happen. And if it does, the studio holds no obligation to hire them for the full project they just worked in the mini room. It's the selfish lover equivalent in the business world. One side gets everything while the other one is left wanting. The studios are crying poverty while the writers are crying foul as top executives at studios continue to bring in hundreds of millions of dollars in salary and bonuses. And in a characteristic bit of terrible timing... <laughs> Warner Brothers Discovery announced their quarterly earnings on Friday and reported that their streaming unit had turned a profit of $50 million last quarter compared to a loss of $654 million the previous quarter. <laughs> and even that's comically misleading. The company had a net loss of $1.1 billion with earnings down 10% year over year. But hey, one division had a fractional profit, so the Titanic is no longer sinking, y'all. Well, I don't know about that. While crowing about profitability may be bad optics in light of the writer's strike, in another way, it's good timing for David Zaslov and Warner Brothers Discovery as analysts appeared ready earlier this week to turn on the studio. The honeymoon appeared over as one analyst called the merger of Warner Brothers and Discovery an unmitigated disaster. He's I right, you know. <laughs> I do wonder when Wall Street was going to finally start seeing the writing on the wall. Zaslov literally rewrote the rules on his bonuses when he realized he wouldn't get one if he continued to gamble on profitability. How does no one see that for the callous and greedy move that it was? Hey, here's a Wall Street lesson for you. As long as the investors are making a profit, they're happy paying off the bag man. Yeah. So the Writers Guild will say that studios haven't been negotiating in good faith, barely budging on their position and ignoring the writers' concerns. And with no resolution in sight, the WGA called for a strike on Monday night. By Tuesday, writers were picketing studios in New York and Los Angeles. The irony is that just last week, studios were in Las Vegas for CinemaCon celebrating with exhibitors the resurrection of theatrical movies. It was the biggest pep rally for movies you could imagine. Moviegoers are back, y'all. 
and movies are doing incredibly well at the box office. The downturn caused by the pandemic seemed to be in the rearview mirror. The downturn largely resulted in fewer movies being produced because everybody got sent home, but that was over. The new movies that were created after the pandemic were starting to hit theaters. It's looking right now like the slate coming into the summer is packed with tentpole movies, something that we may have never seen before. The Just the huge number of blockbusters that are slated to come out in the next few months. But now Hollywood studios are looking at a new shutdown, and it's one that likely is not going to end anytime soon. A strike only works if you make it painful for one party or the other. It's going to be a while before studios see the strike as affecting their bottom line, but writers are already claiming they can't pay their rent, so the strike's not likely to change things for the worse anytime soon for them. Ow. Goodness gracious, that's depressing. And for the record, the 2007-2008 strike lasted exactly 100 days. And there was one before that, all the way back in, what was it, 1988, that lasted 153 days. So that's uh, generally where I, I would expect somewhere around around there before this gets, gets, gets resolved. Yeah, three to five months has been the historical precedent for this. But Raul, I know in speaking with you privately, you think this one's going to go on a while longer than that, don't you? At least three months. But all right, folks, this is where you get your tinfoil hats out. I have a couple of theories about just how long the strike's going to go. Reportedly, Netflix and Warner Brothers Discovery are the two hardline studios at the negotiation table. And I speculate that each has their very own and very different reason for being a holdout. In the case of Warner Brothers Discovery, there's a contract clause called force majeure, which lets one party out of a contract in the event of a major incident. You can imagine if you've hired a contractor to retile your bathroom, and he can't complete the job because the house is burned down. That's force majeure. In this case, force majeure means a studio can't complete a movie or TV show because of the strike. So they can terminate contracts. It can't happen immediately. I've been reading through the paperwork, and while I've heard that it may be up to 90 days before a studio can enact this clause, I've seen other language that says that it may be as little as five weeks. Whenever it is, once force majeure is declared, a studio like Warner Brothers Discovery can break contracts with producers, directors, or anyone they want and get out of it scot-free. Yes. And earlier when I referenced the letters that Warner Brothers Discovery and Disney had sent out to the producers and showrunners, this is one of the things that matters to this. They're creating a paper trail, especially Warner Brothers Discovery, that says, hey, we're letting you know we think this is going to be bad for a while. That's not an accidental thing. That is a strategic. We are preparing to announce this force majeure clause so that we can get out of this. In other words, Warner Brothers may be talking about the 50 million in profit, but they're acutely aware of the 1.1 billion in losses and they want to clean up their books even more. And that's only possible in a wildly unlikely scenario like this, which just goes to show you, God help us all, the universe might be on David Zaslav's side. Yeah, we've seen this before. David Zaslov, as the head of Discovery, when he merged with Warner Brothers, inherited a studio which had projects he did not want. He canceled shows right before they completed production. He fired people he didn't want to deal with anymore. He erased movies and TV shows from existence. And Force Majeure is going to give him an out to cancel contracts with people he doesn't want to work with. And Warner Brothers Discovery can insulate themselves from the strike because now they have all this unscripted content from Discovery whose merger is happening with HBO Max in just a couple of weeks. Coincidence? 
And then the Netflix side of this is even more fascinating to me. Netflix would happily pay whatever because Netflix has all the cash it needs for all this stuff. They have a different goal in mind, don't they, Roll? That's right, David. Netflix is flush with cash, and they're largely insulated from the consequences of the writer's strike because they are a global company, and they don't sell movies to theaters or TV shows to networks. Netflix is sitting pretty, but in the meantime, networks may not have new scripted shows in their upcoming fall TV schedule. In 12 to 18 months, exhibitors may not have movies to show in their theaters. We're already seeing this. I mean, Mahershala Ali is going to star in Blade for Marvel, and they have already said that what was previously a troubled production anyway cannot get started because they just brought in the latest writer for this project. That person's, I think, on their second or third third day on the job. They can't continue writing right now because they're on strike, which means that project is going to be delayed for another six to nine months. And on top of that, we have just seen a litany of shows canceled on network television because, hey, any old show is approaching its end date anyway. So why would you pay for it knowing the fact that the scripts are going to be late and next season is going to be a mess? Yeah, but Netflix is barely going to bat an eye here. We've seen hits like Lupin from France and Squid Game from Korea on Netflix, non-English language shows produced overseas, and unscripted programming like Tiger King and Love is Blind. I don't think Netflix is indifferent to the writers. I think Netflix wants the writer's strike to cripple their competition, the Hollywood studios, and drive down their stock prices, maybe drive them into bankruptcy. And only then will Netflix come to the table and offer the writers a fair deal. As conspiratorial as it may sound, I think Netflix is using the writers as a weapon against its fellow studios. Because a studio that's bankrupt will license their content to Netflix for less, or heck, maybe Netflix will just buy themselves a studio or two. That's right, folks. There is a possibility here, or at least a play on the board if Netflix wants to do it, wherein they become the mergers and acquisitions buyer instead of seller, where they see somebody like Warner Brothers Discovery, where the water is at their nose, if not higher, and they decide, hey, we can jump in and get this that will actually make us better long-term and diversify us, while in the short term, we're not paying as much as what the asset it should actually be valued at. Warner Brothers Discovery is in the writer's strike because they're cheap. Netflix is in the writer's strike because Netflix thinks there is an opportunity here to become a much more powerful institution beyond streaming alone. So this isn't going to be resolved anytime soon. Now, how long? Yeah, probably in the 90 to 100 day range. It is going to be painful. It's going to be painful for writers who frankly have already been feeling the pain for some time. But it's only when you really make it painful for the studios that they're really going to want to come to the table. We saw almost immediately that across the board, the stock price of studios started plummeting in light of the strike. But that is right now probably temporary. It is some people maybe overreacting. But within, I'd say, a month or two, we're going to start seeing some real consequences where the studios start losing money because they don't have content to sell to the theaters, to networks, and to their own streaming services. And only then are the studios going to be 
taking the writer's concerns seriously. But we should add it is like any other Wall Street thing in that we're guessing rather than knowing if the economy suddenly gets stronger and these stocks go up, they will have all of the negotiating power because they can say, we're doing fine without you. So in a weird way, the writer's strike is going to be connected to the stock market in the short term. In our rapid fire this week, there's news out of Paramount. Their quarterly earnings call was full of bad news as losses related to streaming grew and the studio cut their shareholder dividend. But in a bit of good news, their smash hit Yellowstone is ending after five seasons. Raul, why is that good news? Well, Kevin Costner's being a butt and he wants out of Yellowstone, presumably so he can move to doing his epic movie that he's working on right now. And essentially, Paramount has decided that this is a great opportunity for them to end Yellowstone and then start a new Yellowstone. This is significant because right now the streaming service that carries Yellowstone episodes is not Paramount's own streaming service, Paramount Plus, but a competitor streaming service, Peacock. And if they cancel Yellowstone and launch a new Yellowstone series, which it's been speculated before might star Matthew McConaughey, they could just put that series on Paramount Plus and cut Peacock out of the equation entirely. Suggested names, Yellowstone 2 or Orange Stone. <laughs> we can we can talk about the analytics of this all we want, but we discussed this in February when the rumor popped up. And to a person, we all said, oh, yeah, that's going to happen for two reasons. One, you can always count on Kevin Costner to be combustible when his career is on the ascension. He is amazing in that regard, wherein he just seems like an unlovable person, and yet audiences love him anyway. Yellowstone is an absolute blockbuster. It would be absolutely insane to walk away. So that's exactly what he's going to do. It makes no sense, but here we are. And from a business perspective, Paramount can help itself while hurting the competition. And frankly, you're bad at business if you have that opportunity and don't take it. In their bid to remain relevant and presumably try to stay afloat without writers, it's been reported that Peacock is developing a new reality series, Sex in the Dark. David, you first spotted this one, so you get to tell us about it. Oh, no. No, no, no. I write about Disney for a living. Somebody else could talk about this one. Um, no. Oh, dear. It appears to be Naked and Afraid meets Love is Blind. And you can figure out what happens from there based on the title. And I think it's telling that it's produced by the same company that did Clarkson's Farm. So these are people who are willing to work with Jeremy Clarkson. And that's all you need to know. Oh, God. All right. So basically what we're saying is reality television has turned into porn. <laughs> porn with your guess, eyes shut. I guess that's how they'll get people to watch. And there won't be anything else. Facebook parent company Meta has shut down their Facebook Watch Originals programming. Why does this matter? The only show on Facebook Watch anyone's ever heard of is Red Table Talk, the interview show with Jada Pinkett Smith. I doubt anyone's actually watched this show except for maybe that one episode, but it's produced by Jada and Will Smith's Westbrook Studio, so it's likely we'll see the show pop up elsewhere. Counterpoint? It doesn't matter. We all know it doesn't matter. And what we're seeing here is that all of these companies like Meta that at some point at least casually exploring the idea of creating their own content have now realized the financials of it don't work in a way that allows them to, you know, do their legal celebrity stalking, which is what this was. And I could have sworn Facebook Watch ended years ago, but I guess not. Yeah. <laughs> 
They also had that failed attempt to replace Twitch. Do you recall that as well? Facebook does a lot of things where mm-hmm. they notice other people's market share and they're like, hey, we should do that too. And then they get into it and they realize, hey, that's hard. We shouldn't be doing this. Yeah, Facebook gaming tried to be a thing and it went about as well as, what was that, Mixer? Oh, yes, Mixer, the Microsoft game streaming service. Microsoft being another company that does this. So yes, it's generally a mistake. And let's be honest about the fact Meta's leadership over the last five years has been incredibly shaky. It was announced this week that after a one-season visit to Disney+, Plus, Dancing with the Stars will be returning to ABC. But it will continue to be simulcast on Disney+. Plus. Is this a condemnation of live streaming events? Yes. <laughs> I think... <laughs> I think it's a reflection of the fact that we don't know how these things are going to perform. And sometimes you have to run a test. Disney ran Dancing with the Stars on Disney Plus exclusively for one season, and they saw how it worked out. And now they've decided to bring it back to broadcast television. We are in a very new world here. We are learning things every day about how people watch content. And in this case, Disney has determined that the best way to share Dancing with the Stars with their audience is on broadcast, but for anyone who may be interested in watching it on streaming, it's still going to be there for you. Yeah, Disney's new mantra is that they're going to go where audiences are. And what they mean in this specific instance is it's also going to remain on Disney+. Plus. So if you're one of the forward-thinking people who is already committed to streaming and isn't looking back on conventional broadcast television, you'll still find it. However, what Disney isn't saying is what we all know, and that's this was a test attempt that was just a debacle. We suspected this because they never once reported numbers throughout the season. And if you go back and listen to our old broadcast, Before they aired Dancing with the Stars, we wondered what the numbers would be. After a few weeks, we wondered where the numbers were. That doesn't happen unless it's going very, very badly. People love to be transparent when the news is good, and they love to be opaque when there's nothing positive to say. So really what this shows is while we're in the dying days of conventional broadcast television, we're also not to a point where we can take the shows on broadcast television, put them on streaming and expect similar financial results or even anything equivalent to that financially or in terms of ratings. So everybody's stuck. It is non-scripted programming for ABC to fill up that grid just in case the writer's strike goes on for a longer than expected period of time. That's an excellent point. Also this week, while Hollywood burned, studios and streamers were in New York for the new fronts. And Amazon announced that they, too, were all in with ad-supported streaming. Raul, what's the latest? The new fronts is where streamers pitch their offerings to advertisers. In a couple of weeks, we'll have the upfronts where studios do the same, but we'll see just what happens when advertisers have to cross picket lines to see the presentations. Amazon's new front presentation was on Monday before the strike call, so they got to actually do their presentation to advertisers. And their big announcement was that they now, too, were launching a fast service, a free ad-supported streaming service with Hundreds of live channels showing news and entertainment content supplemented by ads and available through a channel grid on your Fire TV. If this sounds familiar, it's because Google made a very similar announcement just last week. And lastly, the Phoenix Suns are taking a page from the playbook of teams like the Yankees, the Red Sox, the Rangers, and the Knicks and launching their own streaming service. But with a bit of a twist. Isn't that right, Raul? 
Yeah, the sudden collapse of regional sports networks or RSNs have left professional teams looking for alternatives. Teams in major markets like New York and Boston can easily launch their own streaming services and charge $30 a month for them to any comers. But the NBA's Phoenix Suns and the WNBA's Phoenix Mercury are doing something a little differently. They've signed a deal with local TV broadcaster Great Television to bring their games to broadcast in the Phoenix area, which means that if you get any of Great's channels on cable or over the air, you'll have access to watch these games. The real slap in the face to RSNs here is that by making the games available on broadcast, the Sun and Mercury will be available to 2.8 million households, which is three times the potential audience they had when they were exclusively on Bally Sports RSN. (laughs) Sorry, did you say three times? (laughs) Yep. If you are a diehard Phoenix Suns fan and you're outside of Gray Television's broadcast area, you'll be able to subscribe to a streaming service and watch the games that way. If I had to guess, I'd say this is the future. You make games available locally to build a loyal following and make the games available through a subscription service elsewhere so that following can continue to watch the games if they move out of your area. Folks, this is the exact reason why you know Mark Cuban's name. I am not joking. In the early days of the internet, Mark Cuban wanted to listen to Indiana basketball games and knew other people did. And so he created something called, Roll. do you remember? Broadcast.com. Broadcast.com for that express purpose. And now here he is, tens of billions of dollars later, because a lot of people love their sports teams that much. So now the only difference from his idea to this one is we're adding video to the equation. And needless to say, Diamond Sports, which owns the Bali Sports RSNs, isn't happy and claims that the Suns are breaking their contract. They're threatening to sue, but given that Diamond Sports is in bankruptcy and the Suns are probably one of their creditors, pay your bills, Diamond. Maybe suing isn't the right move. I mean, it's ballsy of them to say, we're not going to pay you for your product, but we will pay our lawyers to sue you so that we can keep access to your product. Okay, Tim, I know we have box office to discuss this week before we move on to the ratings. Yeah, uh, I mean, it's the first weekend of May, so of course we're going to get something big, and that something is Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, the latest Marvel release and the long-awaited sequel to Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, which came out all the way back in 2017. Uh, Volume 3? Volume 3, right? Yeah. Uh, We've got a Friday number of 48.2 million with 17.5 million of that coming uh, from Thursday night showings. Uh, So it's headed to, what, a weekend of 110, 115 million, which... Sounds good. You can never knock 100 million plus opening weekends because honestly, as we said multiple times, we were wondering if that would even be a thing anymore. And we've been proven wrong, but it's still always good to see. And that's an important bar. But this is down a bit from where the second one opened, which was 146 million on this very weekend, what, six years ago. It's going to end up coming slightly ahead of where Quantumania, the Ant Man and the Wasp movie from a couple months ago, came in with 106 million for the weekend. So this is fine, right? I guess that's the question I've got for you, Tim, because we're all Always the proponents of the argument that the quality of one film directly impacts the performance of the second film on opening weekend. And in that scenario, Guardians 2 did so well because people just adored Guardians. The first one, correct, yes. Yeah. Have we reached a point now where a Marvel title is really coasting on the wave of the previous one? And in that scenario, the quantum mania debacle is what has set this back so much? Yeah, possibly. And I do maintain that, especially since being a under the, the Disney umbrella, there is a portion of the audience who is now conditioned to just be like, oh, I'll just wait 
you know, a couple months and it'll be on streaming. I do think that is a non-zero factor in this because you'll see, as we will talk about on on what's new, Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania will hit Disney Plus on uh, the 17th of May, about three months after its release. So you know, if you can wait that long, you get to see it on, on streaming rather than going to the theater, unless it's something truly, truly special. I wonder if that's where Marvel has has landed now with audiences, because I feel like has there really been anything that's just knocked everyone's socks off? And that may be Black Panther 2, you know, Wakanda Forever, but that's all I can think of, really. You probably have to go to 2021's Shang-Chi for one that was, you know, just like, most people, I'll say the overwhelming majority of people really, really liked, if mm-hmm. not loved. And for whatever reason, people do seem to be able to distinguish the Sony Spider-Man movies from these as if they're right. their thing. And so for whatever reason, Marvel doesn't seem to get credit for that. And also, let's be honest, it's been a tumultuous start to 2023 with the firing of Victoria Alonso and then the kerfluffle where they finally dumped Isaac Perlmuter, which caused the reliving of all of the awful things Isaac <laughs> Perlmuter has done. There's been a lot of negative Marvel out there, and I can't help but think that has set this product back some. However, the quality of it is by all accounts exceptional, and it actually got an A Cinema score. So okay. I'm optimistic about it. Are you optimistic, Tim? I think so. It's it's not going to do the complete fall off a cliff in the second weekend that happened with Quantumania, where it dropped 70%, which we said that raises all sorts of alarm bells. And we were suddenly worried about the longevity of the MCU, at least in terms of box office powerhouse factor. The second one dropped 55% which is pretty standard. So I, I could see that. The weekend's fine. Again, you can't say anything bad about a weekend that's over uh, 100 million, even if it seemed like it was going to be, you were expecting it to do to do more. That's where I'm at with that right now. I think it is the the whole uncertainty of phase four, phase five, whatever we were in now. It, yeah, Spider-Man is like the outlier here because it is not a Disney product. It's, it's, it's still under the, the Sony one. But when you look at all the MCU releases, what they've done since we came out of the, the pandemic, starting with Black Widow and continuing to hear the general opinions like, okay, that's okay, but not amazing. And I think we were kind of spoiled just with how, you know, we had Infinity War and, and Endgame just set all sorts of records. And we, we were wondering if that would continue with some of the lesser tier projects. And I think people are content to wait now unless they do hear that is this is something, you know, truly worth seeing on the big screen. All right. Thanks, Tim. Let's go ahead and move into the ratings. Yep, We have the Nielsen streaming ratings for Monday, April 3rd to Sunday, April 9th, 2023. This is not an exciting week, but let's see what we have. Uh, We are once again led with The Night Agent, 1.8 billion minutes for its 10 episodes down from the heights of the three billion on its first full week, which is to be expected, but that's that's still excellent. And I know frustrates you guys since you, you didn't like how it ended, but I think the general consensus with the audience seemed to be that they want more of this and we're definitely getting a season two because it's already been renewed. It's perfectly bland Netflix sanitized television or whatever you want to call it these days. Uh, second, we have Love is Blind, uh, again, reappearing with the new season a couple weeks ago, adding episodes week week by week until that ill-fated live finale that's coming up in a week or two. Uh, 1.1 billion minutes for 54 total episodes. Can't wait till uh, this wire strike goes on long enough that it's nothing but uh, you know shows like this, right? The ratings? Yes. Can't wait. Yeah. It'll just be these. Oh, it's going to be awful. <laughs> trashy, trashy reality shows and uh, K-dramas. Yes. <laughs> Uh, the Mandalorian from Disney Plus is in third, back over a billion minutes for 22 episodes. Is that the uh, season finale there? 
uh, there's two more episodes to go in, in the season and we're already over a billion. So yeah, I think it'll, it'll hold with the last two episodes. We do tend to see that binge effect at the end of the season for the Star Wars shows. So yeah, I'm expecting very solid numbers for within the next two weeks when we get the final two episodes of the third season. Our one new show this week on the original start is Beef, 10 episodes for 962 million minutes. This is a American drama starring well-known Korean American actors, Ali Wong and Steven Yoon. I guess it's like a dark comedy where two people literally begin a feud or a beef as people call them nowadays. That's right. A road rage incident leads the two of them into a feud. It's got a number of comedic undertones. What's significant about the show is that it's a series produced by A24. Oh, okay. Yeah. The the film studio known for a lot of their, a lot of Oscar bait. A24 can do anything. Yeah. In horror. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so that's that's our only new show on the on the list this week, which is surprising. But this is just a, a, actually just premiered April sixth, so it is the majority of the week. But that's still very good, and I expect it to to take a bit of a jump next week. Uh, Ted Lasso is fifth, six hundred fifty million minutes for twenty six episodes. Again, this from Apple TV Plus, still the only Apple TV Plus program we've ever seen on these ratings. Uh, Shadow and Bone, three hundred eighty nine million minutes in six. Unstable saw that premiere last week, three hundred eighty six million minutes for eight episodes in seventh. You three hundred million minutes for forty episodes in eighth. Ninth is Emergency NYC, two hundred ninety nine million minutes viewed for eight episodes. And Gabby's Dollhouse wraps up originals with two hundred seventy nine million minutes for fifty one episodes. Does that include the new episodes now, or are we still just having people watching the old ones? Yes, that is the, the new season that, that hit by this point. So it seemed to do pretty much as well before the new episodes as after? It seems like it, but it always seems to be one of those shows that if we saw the next 10, I feel like it's the original's equivalent of like a Coco Melon, where it's just always there. Just doesn't have clearly as many total minutes or at least as much as popularity as Coco Melon, but I think it still gets its share of, of viewers. But yeah. yeah, it didn't seem to take a big jump, but I, not that I was expecting it, but it did move up a little bit to appear on the list again once those new episodes arrived. Movies is still led by Murder Mystery 2, 871 million minutes viewed for its first full week of availability on Netflix. Uh, a bit of a drop, but I still think that's fine. Once they knew the mystery, they were less interested. <laughs> <laughs> and the most of the rest of the movies is going to be a kind of a goofy week, but I think we do have a plausible explanation. Uh, in second, we actually saw this last week, The Bourne Legacy, 457 million minutes. That's just the, the Jeremy Renner Bourne film that re- returned to Netflix along with the original three on April 1st. So I think it's just, yes, it's Jeremy Renner being in the news is what drove people to select this one, I have a feeling. Uh, well, you have a 2023 release, a new release on the movie's chart this week, Chupa, 412 million minutes. This is a, I guess, a fantasy adventure film. Kind of an E.T. with kids in uh, Mexico finding a chupacabra. Oh, okay. That's where the title comes from. Okay. I was like, what? I wasn't sure what that actually meant. Uh, I'm going to mention the next three movies together. Fourth is Shark Tale, 367 million minutes. Fifth is Over the Hedge, 339 million minutes. And sixth, Matilda, 316 million minutes. Uh, these all returned to Netflix on April 1st from wherever they were. Uh, the first two, of course, being animated productions from DreamWorks. And Matilda, yeah, the, the 1996 live action kids movie. Parents, if you are going to babysit your children with something, Over the Hedge is an exceptional choice. (laughs) I do want to point out that 
Nielsen oftentimes puts the year of the movie if there's going to be some confusion. Now, do we need to know that this is Over the Hedge 2006? I, I don't know about that. But let's remember that Netflix produced their own musical version of Matilda that came out at Christmas. That's not this one. Yeah, I was going to say, like, how do they not give Matilda a year? Yeah, but this it's, is it's, weird. It's confirmed that it is the it is the live action one from from 1996, uh, starring Marvel Wilson and directed by Danny DeVito. If you if you forgot that, but yeah, it, it was uh, this was the week before Easter, so yeah, kids had free reign on their parents' streaming accounts, and this this seems to be one of the results, along with it being new content according to Netflix. Uh, the original murder mystery movie is seven, 285 million minutes. Hotel Transylvania pops also back up on the list, 268 million minutes. Netflix, by the way, had the first eight movies on the chart. Uh, here's your one uh, Disney Plus movie for the week, Moana in ninth, 221 million minutes. And Top Gun Maverick, credited to Paramount Plus and Prime Video, wraps it up with 207 million minutes. Acquired is 10 shows we have seen before, of course. This week, though, led by Bluey from Disney Plus, 137 million minutes. Again, because kids were probably home for the <laughs> for spring break. So yeah, that's a big win for that show. I'm curious why all of a sudden in the last few weeks it's taken a, a big jump in, in numbers after we only saw it intermittently before. Um, the one other returning show I'll throw in is we have seen it before, but it's been a while. SpongeBob SquarePants in eighth, 452 million minutes for 212 total episodes. Credited to Paramount Plus and Prime Video. But yeah, uh, a very light week outside of those top three original shows cracking a billion. I don't see too much on the horizon. So this is going to be a, probably a very dry month for, for streaming unless something really surprises out of nowhere. But I don't have any answers. So I'm curious what these numbers are going to, are going to look like. And it may be uh, a bit of a lull before we, we get some, some heavy headers again. All right. Thanks, Tim. In our green lights and cancellations this week, Ryan Murphy's follow-up to his smash hit Dahmer series on Netflix will focus on Eric and Lyle Menendez. Gross. Yep. If this sounds familiar, it's because Law and Order dabbled in true crime a few years ago, and they had their own version of uh, the Eric and Lyle Menendez story. And that's all I've got to say about that. <laughs> yeah. And Netflix has renewed The Diplomat with Carrie Russell and Rufus Sewell for a second season. And in unrelated news, Ted Serranos's missing teddy bear has been returned to him unharmed. <laughs> <laughs> that was the only show I was considering mentioning that may make some noise over the next month when we get the ratings, but it's doing fine, but not like say night agent levels. But so, but it was good enough for Netflix for them to renew it already though. Yeah. That in the new season of Marvelous Ms. Maisel seem to be the things that my friends are talking about the most anecdotally. At Amazon's freebie, the Bosch spinoff, Bosch Legacy, has been renewed for a third season. I really look forward to the TikTok ad campaign. <laughs> <laughs> And while UK panel shows rarely translate to success in the United States, that's not going to keep Freebie from trying. Trevor Noah will be among the executive producers of an American version of Mock the Week. Celebrity panelists will compete in teams as they satirize the week's news. The premise sounds a lot like At Midnight, the Comedy Central show. So I'm inclined to think that this might be successful. But then again, I thought an American version of Taskmaster would be great. And here we are. <laughs> I do wonder how something like this would fit within the Writers Guild strike. Like if you're someone who is an accredited writer and a member of the Guild, who is also a celebrity with a quick wit, could you participate in this right now? Yeah, that's okay. going to be challenging and Kind of borderline. Yep, I would think so. And yeah, but I guess we'll find out. 
As always, we close out with what's been keeping us busy over the last week. And David and I, I think we'll cover a couple of things, but I will talk about Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, which I loved. I'm one of the few people who did not necessarily love, love the first Guardians of the Galaxy. I liked the characters. I thought the plot was dumb. I thoroughly enjoyed the second Guardians of the Galaxy. And this one is, it's very good. It's very heartwarming. I will give the warning that if you are sensitive to animals being hurt, these are CGI animals, of course. This is a little bit tough. I found myself feeling stressed throughout the movie, but I love Rocket Raccoon. This is in many ways Rocket's movie. And so that did it for me. It was a blast and it was a fitting close to the way that I'd like to see this iteration of the series end. Raul, how about you? I binged The Diplomat on Netflix this week. I started late on Monday and thought I could get by with just the first episode, but clearly not. This show is addictive. It's only eight episodes, so you'll get through it pretty quickly. It's a drama starring Carrie Russell as a career diplomat who is suddenly thrust into the position of U.S. ambassador to the U.K. due to a crisis. She's no-nonsense, uninterested in the formalities and dressings of the position, hard-nosed and focused on getting things done. Rufus Sewell plays her husband, a former ambassador himself, who's presently on the outs with the Secretary of State. So he's just along for the ride, but he just can't help but meddle in his wife's duties. The whole series is incredibly fast-paced, like an Aaron Sorkin episode of The West Wing in eight parts. There's some moments of humor, especially when Michael McKeon shows up as President Ray Burn, a thinly veiled caricature of President Biden. But ultimately, it's like a primer in the complexities of diplomacy and the horse trading involved in any political solution. I found myself on the edge of my seat multiple times, and the climax in the season finale will leave you shaken. I loved this show, and I am relieved to hear that it's been renewed for a second season. All right, Tim, how about you? Uh, I finally started season three of Ted Lasso. I have watched the first two episodes and yeah, it's some of it's working for me, um, but a couple things are absolutely not. As much as I adored her before, I cannot stand any of the scenes with Keely. And I'm not looking forward to that continuing. I don't care about this story. It just seems like an extra subplot just for the sake of a subplot. Uh, and that, that's very disappointing. Some of the humor feels a little forced uh, in the couple episodes. Some of the jokes work. Some of them do not. It's disappointing. Uh, I know you you guys have suggested later on there are uh, there are a couple episodes that are excellent. I, mean, I have not disliked it. It just doesn't feel like it's the same show. I'm like, you guys delayed it for this. But I'm still hopeful that they can and, you know, stick the landing at the end. We're still a couple weeks away from the uh, season slash series finale, which I actually think it might be towards the end of May, but I'll keep at it. It's just, uh, there's some very troubling things happening in the in the first two episodes. And it, it was sad to, to see after uh, how much we all love the first two seasons. Yes. When you get to the Amsterdam episode, that is one of the high points of the entire series. Oh, good. Actually. Okay. Yeah. And David. Yeah, I'll actually start with something off the board from what Kim mentioned, and that is we finally finished watching The Bear. And we had to take that one slow because those episodes you kind of have to endure. And I mean that in a good way. It is exceptional writing. But if you want to see what a toxic kitchen looks like, this is a very realistic interpretation of this where you're just always under the gun because people expect their food right then. I love this series, even 
though I'm not sure I will ever rewatch a single episode of it. And then with Guardians of the Galaxy, Kim and I are exactly the same here. If you know how editing works guardians of the galaxy the original one is an absolute mess glenn close comes and goes throughout they just don't know what to do with that character and so i'm sure she has like you know several scenes that they had to take out in the editing booth but if you get past that guardians of the galaxy volume 2 represented a stronger firmer hand where you could tell that director james gunn had control of the process more well his time away from marvel really really helped him and this is a measured, considered film where he knows exactly how he wants to leave these characters. And the process to getting there is wonderful, even though Kim is right. It is a surprisingly stressful film at times because the two no-nos in life, you can tell a bad person by the fact that they're main to children or animals. And the villain in this is both. And that makes them, you know, just like menacing in a rare way. And it's kind of a cheat, but it is a very effective cheat and very, very satisfying payoff. And I will say this, if he makes DC movies like this, DC Studios is going to become a factor. I suspect this was more confidence with the characters, experience with the characters, that sort of thing. But if this is how he is developed as a filmmaker now, the rest of his career is going to be very, very impressive. And then finally, we're caught up on Ms. Maisel. We finally watched all six episodes over the last seven days because, you know, there's something I think everybody knows is coming and we didn't want to get that spoiled. And it's been brilliant, just absolutely brilliant. I'm an Oliver. I've always been an Oliver. Kim and I have been on the Amy Sherman Palladino bandwagon since, you know, the very first episode of Gilmore Girls, the day it premiered. We watched it live, and we're never getting off that bandwagon. Her and her husband, Daniel Palladino, they're brilliant. They're next-level brilliant and among the greatest entertainment writers, not just of our generation, but of all time. And it is a joy to watch them in this. And it's also, I'm enthralled by knowing there's going to be two seasons of a new thing on Amazon, and I'm sure that'll be brilliant too. Kim, Ms. Maisel, that fourth episode of season five, is that the best thing they've ever done? Yes. I think this season across the board has been just amazing. There are some things that I don't know that I love that they're doing. However, what I will say is they're they're tying strings together, I think. I'm excited that they have another drama coming. It's a ballet drama, and I loved Bunheads for various reasons, and this one will be called Etoile, and will feature some of her Maisel performers. So I am excited for that one coming in the future. Yeah, basically what Kim and I are saying is we finally had an opportunity to get caught up on TV and movies, and the universe rewarded us with some exceptional content. So thank you. All right. Thank you for listening to Streaming Into the Void. Please consider subscribing via Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And we welcome your feedback. Remember that we're on social media at Streaming Void and online at StreamingVoid.com. If you like what you're hearing, please consider becoming a supporter on Patreon at Patreon.com slash Streaming Void. Be sure to watch for us again next week. 